0: Cooperatives in Europe have been a big part of life, particularly in the primary producer sector, for hundreds of years, and the Netherlands in particular has a culture of these co-ops. One of the highest profile operations is Rabobank, which has evolved from a group of farmers that got together, would you believe it, 130 years ago. Around 10 years ago, Rabobank came to Australia and New Zealand, and while it doesn't operate as a co-op here, it is very much run along the lines of its parent operation, which it comes to culture and ethos. BCCM's Michael Kavanagh had a chat with Rabobank's Head of Sustainability and Community Engagement, Mark Oisthedich. Michael, in what way does a very large bank bring that co-op mentality to its Australasian operation?
1: Melina, like the bank's origins in the Netherlands, it's still very much in the primary sector here in Australia and New Zealand, but not just providing finance to farmers. It goes out, works closely with its client councils, which comprise farmers around the country. And this has led to projects around financial skills, not surprising for a bank, I suppose, but also mental health and tertiary education for primary producers. This has come about, not surprisingly, with that co-op bent. Co ops, they're very much linked to the rural community, although they're banks and other operations that these days cooperatives are also involved with. One country that has a long history involved with co ops and probably very much at the rural section initially is the Netherlands. And one of those co ops, which has certainly branched out, but still with very much rural roots, is Robobank. And it's had something like 130 years involved as a co-op in the banking sector with the rural area as well. And Mark Ostyke is uh, the Director of Sustainability and also the Community Fund, which we're going to talk about as well. Mark, first of all, thanks very much for uh, joining us.
2: Uh, Thanks for having me, Mike.
1: Mark, the history of co-ops essentially came from the rural sector. But the Netherlands in particular has got a very strong culture, even today, of cooperatives. What do you put that down to?
2: Yeah, good question. I think what has been very interesting, certainly also in the history of our organization, of becoming and making the choice, a deliberate and conscious choice to actually become a co op, is that they were very much inspired by Mr. Rifeisen. Uh, who was a uh, a real pioneer in relation to cooperative thinking in the mid-1800s. Uh, and that story is quite remarkable. He was chosen to be a mayor at the age of 28 uh, and was asked to actually go to a certain village of which he was going to be mayor of. And when he arrived there, it it was very clear that that, uh, that community, that, that village was quite poor. They saw very little prospect for for, for, the, for the village. There was no school, there was no bakery, there was a little bit of agriculture happening. But at that time, it was also uh, very much the case that there were a number of what we, co- we could call uh, loan sharks around uh, that would be very happy to actually give personal loans to, uh, to f- small farmers with almost a certain expectations that they would not be able to pay it back. And then would show up at an auction when the farmer was going to be forced to sell the land and grab the land for a very, very small price. And that sort of injustice uh, was seen by Raiffeisen. And obviously he saw that as very unfair. And that was basically for him the first inspiration to actually say, we actually need to get to come together as a community, stop this from happening and become self-sufficient. And I think that self-sufficiency is something which became the real cornerstone of his policy going forward. So history tells us that he basically mobilized the village, but he also mobilized something else. He actually said, "Okay, for us to become self-sufficient, we need to uh, organize our agricultural production better. And in order to do that, we need to invest. How do we get money? Okay." If we don't have it in town, we need to get it elsewhere. So he basically called upon his contacts in the city to actually say, okay, you've got enough money around. If you want to look for a return on this money, you could invest it in my village. And I will make sure that I will mobilize the community, get agricultural production going, and make sure that I can actually pay you a good return. That was obviously, well, music to their ears. And he managed to actually get money into the village managed to get uh, buy everything required for agricultural production, from, um, from seeds to also, at that time, what was known as machinery. But very soon, the village became quite successful in agricultural production. Money was starting to flow into the town and they could actually uh, afford to uh, build a school uh, as a community, to build a bakery as a, as a community. And uh, things were going a lot better in that town, let's say within three years, it was completely on its feet. And that was for him, the first proof of being able to mobilize the community, but very much so uh, making sure that people understand that self-sufficiency is the path forward. Uh, nobody wants to be depending on a government for handouts. They basically shaped their own, they shaped their own future. And, and yeah, that was the end of that. That became the major inspiration of the first uh, founders of the bank later on in uh, in the late 1800s because Mr. Ryfaisen's philosophy was at that time spreading throughout the whole of Western Europe.
1: So, Mark, did they have the initial idea of a, what's more the traditional co-op that the farmers were getting together and producing? Or was the money and therefore the financing and a very small bank in the first place. Was that also an initial part of it or that just came on as they expanded and needed to continue to provide a really good co-op?
2: Yeah, I think those things actually came together through through those first steps. They, they noticed that sharing the load and uh, being able to evenly and fairly share income and also uh, investments that would that would really create a better position for everybody and that was that was the general idea about the community they wanted not individuals to flourish they wanted the community to flourish so access to capital in a fair way and uh, even also later on for the bank uh, more let's say cash rich individuals helping others to actually grow as well that became basically the spirit of the cooperative uh, access not only to finance but also uh, access to to knowledge and networks uh, became very important at that time Uh, so basically the first 30 farmers that formed the cooperative in the late 1800s basically said it's not only enough that we are doing well we need our community to do well because in the long run that will be better for us as well and for that we're going to pool our money but we we're also going to pull and make available our knowledge and our networks to help others. And that basically, yeah, uh, mobilized the expertise and the knowledge to uh, to grow the community. And, and therefore, they became uh, uh, self-sufficient. So that, that was th- that value, those values and that lesson learned from Mr. Raiffeisen uh, in the 1800s, uh, used as a value platform for the cooperative by the bank.
1: Rabobank has got a major reputation as being a huge player when it comes to the primary sector. Therefore, in the Netherlands, does it still look at financing co-ops? Obviously, it's in other areas of financing and investment, but is it still driven by looking at potential partners and still having preference towards co-ops? I think
2: we are a very strong advocate of the co-op model and one of the ways in which we demonstrate that is actually also to help others become a co-op if they want that and one of the most clear examples is happening in the area of our rabo foundation in the netherlands Uh, so all the lessons that the bank has learned on becoming a strong cooperative we utilize that in uh, in the developing countries in which our rabo foundation is based uh, so I'll give you an idea when when we would do our work in in some of the developing countries in in, in Africa, we come across uh, an enormous amount of smallholder farmers. Those smallholder farmers individually do not have much power to actually determine their 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 future but combined if they combine their resources, they could do actually create a better future for themselves. So I remember the story of a rice cooperative. Basically, there were, uh, I think in this case, um, 11,000 rice growers, smallholder farmers in Rwanda that were each doing their own thing, that but they were not united. And they had issues on both sides. They had issues to attract money uh, because they were as individuals not cash rich and maybe also for many financial institutions too risky to bank, or also unmanageable to 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 bank in those big numbers. Uh, but they also had an issue in finding an off taker for their product because the quantities were obviously very small. So what the bank has done is utilizing their expertise in setting up a cooperative, and helped the rice growers to set up their cooperative. So. That cooperative became a much more interesting partner for the bank because we could actually service the uh, thousands of rice growers through that cooperative. And we could also access our own network of rice off takers to actually say, we actually have this very interesting uh, cooperative in Rwanda selling rice through the cooperative uh, and 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 basically you could uh, you could off-take that instead of dealing with 11000 individuals you deal with the cooperative uh, so being able to to lend your expertise in that space to set it up make part of the management for a certain amount of time until there is enough comfort within that group to actually do that themselves. And that's the way I think we effectively help these groups uh, getting stronger in in, in, uh, in in countries like Rwanda, Mozambique, Tanzania, and so forth.
1: So does the bank, if it goes into that development fund to a certain country, if you use Rwanda as a very good example, does the bank then also operate in that country, or it is not a necessity that the bank is operating in that country for the development fund to be also used?
2: Yeah, it's not a necessity. We have a number of companies, uh, countries where we actually are based with an affiliate of of the bank. But there are also enough countries in which we do not actually have a physical presence, but we are active through the foundation. And uh, yeah, I think uh, that's the way that we support these countries. Rabobank always looks quite selective to that because we'd like to look at countries obviously that have also significant agricultural potential uh, because we do believe that these countries can also contribute to uh, global food security. If a number of things are better organized, that will be good for uh, the market at large. It will also be good for the farmers and smallholders in those areas. And through this, uh, the bank has been able to, to, to help more than 5 million Smallholder farms in those countries.
1: Mark, the actual cooperative and Rabobank, the only place that it still is a pure co op model is in the Netherlands. The rest of the world, for various reasons, you operate as a company. In Australia, Rabobank is a company. What's prompted that and not going down the co op path in each of those countries?
2: Yeah, no, a very good question. I think legal structures around co-ops are uh, are specific and the way that the the company started to branch out uh, internationally i would probably say from the late 70s onwards they chose a model where um, they could have a better control over the development of uh, of that uh, local business by turning it actually into a branch without starting to get into all sorts of legalities of how a cooperative system works in the US or in Australia or in New Zealand or in Argentina and Brazil. Uh, I think they, uh, they've chosen for that model as, a, as an affiliate of the, of the bank, but always had in mind that first of all, they wanted to behave like a cooperative in that area. And secondly, if the time is right, to actually see, okay, how can we optimize that cooperative model so that clients of the bank really notice that they are client of a cooperative bank. I personally think that the legal structure of a cooperative, okay, that's one thing, but the most important thing is that we behave as a cooperative for our clients. And I think that's a, that's a key thing that we've always uh, kept in mind. So uh, client participation uh, is, for instance, extremely important for us. I know that our, uh, one of our board members uh, has this favorite saying, saying if you w- want to become a better bank, you have to reach out to the outside world uh, because they can tell you. And, and I think that's what, we, uh, that, that's what we use. We've started in, uh, in Rabobank Australia about 10 years with setting up our client councils. Uh, so not a members council but a client council but with the same spirit in mind we wanted to listen to clients what keeps them awake at night uh, in the industry in the community but also capture their feedback on the strategy of the bank and the products and services that we have so they are basically the representation of our client portfolio and have quarterly meetings with us in uh, seven locations in australia uh, that's seven times four meetings on, a, on an annual basis. That's that's a good dialogue to get real good direction for the bank on where we can be relevant. Wanting to main, be relevant and maintaining that relevance is a very important factor for the bank. And we use our clients to inform us.
1: How difficult is it? You've got obviously the board members, you've got company law in Australia, and you wanting to deliver a profit. Then you've got your master's in the Netherlands. It must be a bit of a juggle, although Rabo must be used to this, having to operate in different environments in different countries.
2: Yeah, well, true. And and obviously, that uh, uh, you need to be agile as an organisation to deal with those sort of uh, situations. Uh, I think what is very important is that the bank, when it started to branch out, always made very good choices about recruitment, making sure that we were working with a very, very strong local uh, workforce with a number of sometimes key positions being taken care of by, by people from the Netherlands. Uh, I think in our workforce of 1,500, 1,600 people, we may have just 15 people from the Netherlands, but they do provide that link back to the, to the Netherlands, uh, making sure that we've got that link into management. And at the same time, everybody that is recruited here is specifically recruited not only on their skills as far as an agricultural lender, but also is very much connected to the values of the bank, making sure that uh, client first, long-term approach on the relationship Uh, That's the important uh, point that we have and and no profit maximization. Obviously, a cooperative should not be confused with a (laughs) not-for-profit. A cooperative also requires oxygen and it needs to be able to reinvest in itself. One of the core values of a cooperative is that you are a rock solid bank and financial partner for your clients. Uh, so you cannot weaken your position. You need to be strong and be able to actually be a financial partner for the long run.
1: I'm Michael Kavanagh, and this is the Business Council of Co-ops and Mutuals podcast. And I'm talking to Mark Ostog, who is the RoboBank's Head of Sustainability and Community Engagement. And that community engagement in Australia takes in various forms – Mark, you've mentioned about the development fund that Robo does with countries such as Rwanda, developing countries. While it's not a development fund, you've now got operating in Australia and New Zealand, a rural community fund. And I think what the initial figure is $2 million?
2: That is correct, yes.
1: So how does that operate? Because you've also mentioned the uh, councils and the client councils themselves. How does that operate?
2: when we started out with our client councils about nine years ago we wanted to do two things first of all create a um, uh, a good link to our senior management uh, with our clients uh, so that our clients would have access to senior management through those meetings Uh, and secondly like mentioned uh, also be able to to listen to clients uh, to know what keeps them awake at night because if we know what their material matters are we have a much better chance of being active in areas where it's relevant where it really matters so we started out by organizing our client councils and have regular meetings from these meetings believe it or not throughout australia and new zealand we've been able to actually form five different themes that is driving the entire client council framework so those were the most mentioned and the most prominent topics and issues where our clients are dealing with. I, I can give you a bit of a background on what these uh, what these themes are. So uh, probably number one almost everywhere was industry capacity, meaning actually the ability of rural communities to attract an educated workforce so that they could grow as farm businesses. And uh, that has proven very challenging, uh, and you hear, hear that from time to time, certainly in uh, moments of harvest, and certainly of areas with a lot of horticulture, of obviously because they 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 actually uh, need people above the average uh, in a, in the seasonal peaks. Uh, but that is clearly a a big issue. Uh, we've also seen agriculture education uh in uh, in many universities declining over a period of time i think is there are some good and positive signs that is picking back up again also from interest from uh, from from the city and also more women uh actually quite interested in looking into every business career so that's really a, really a positive but overall industry capacity uh, and also the succession planning are really tabled as as main topics a, a second area is sustainability and and obviously these days you cannot open a newspaper without seeing um you know a target for carbon uh, redu- uh reduction emission reduction or uh or let's say deco- decarbonizing uh countries or decarbonizing supply chain it's 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 all over us and 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 i, and I think there is so much happening in that space, uh, apart from carbon. Obviously, there are also concerns in relation to water availability uh, drought resilience, uh, soil health and, and so forth. That's really top of mind with many of our many of our farmers. A third one that we are focusing on is the uh, so-called rural urban divide. Farmers are quite also yeah, emotional about that fact that, you know, they they look in, in in many cases very well after 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 the land the food production that gets food to the plate in the city there is little knowledge at consumer side what it actually takes for food to get to their plate and uh, yeah sometimes you hear of uh, quite uninformed opinions uh, about, uh, about, let's say, uh, farmer behavior, food production, and the impact that it has on, on nature. So I think that's, that's a reason for concern for the farmers because they wanna be able to actually uh, tell their truth about uh, how they look after the land, how they look after animals uh, in their own way. So the fourth one is health, and in particular, mental health. I can still remember when I joined the bank and came from the Netherlands. Um, I I told somebody that I had no uh, understanding of the concept of remote. I said I, I actually don't know what remote means. I said you know you can, uh, you can give me a bicycle in the Netherlands and blindfold me. Uh, I I'll, I'll bike a certain way and within three kilometers I bump into a town anywhere. So. Yeah, what does it mean? And at the time, I was speaking to Royal Flying Doctors, who's a social partner of us. And um, they said, Oh, we can solve that for you. Uh, you just join us on a uh, clinic flight to Tibubura. So that was a very interesting uh, tour. Uh, arrived there, and I actually immediately understood that wow, in this community of uh, maybe around 80 people, I, I did remember I, they had about three pubs though, so I thought, how does that work out? But it, it was quite—it was quite clear that if that team, medical team, doesn't land on that Thursday to man the medical post, that that area would be completely out of medical attention if they were not there. Uh, so they do—they they do their appointments and their calls on on every Thursday in that week. I don't know if it's still the same, but. Um, that's the way that community and the area around it had actually access to healthcare so that was a big eye opener for me to actually to actually see that and you can imagine the normal medical staff would man the post the mental health nurses would go to the pub obviously not to drink but actually to uh, to ask people if they would know of of people that would be in need of their help because those uh, those people would not automatically uh, let's say, uh, check in themselves. So for us, mental health and health in general is also an, an, an action item. And then, then the fifth topic was the most recent one, which is all about uh, disruption. Disruption obviously presents itself in many different forms. Uh, disruption happens on the moment that um, global markets get disrupted, uh, sometimes by political uh, uh, fallout and trade positions start to to change. Sometimes disruption happens through technology, uh, which in many cases is pretty hard to keep track of because it's exponential growing. It's it's going very, very fast. Uh, But disruption can also happen in markets. Uh, If you are, for instance, uh, a cattle farmer uh, and and you basically see um, the category of uh, animal Uh, or let's say alternative proteins grow in the world uh, that may not put a dent into meat demand at the moment but where does it actually go so it's something that uh, that's top of mind they need to keep track of that and that's sort of disruption that they that they look at so yeah i think those five themes together basically became a great tool for the bank to start delivering actions. And, and, and that was an important point. We didn't only want to talk about it, we also wanted to do something about it. And the doing part is very much in partnership with the clients. So we actually got back to the early days of and trying to mobilize a village to stand on its own feet. We actually do the same with the clients in our client council saying, okay, we now talked about what is keeping you awake at night now we're going to do something about it let's join forces and do it together so uh, the councils together with the bank developed a number of initiatives uh completely focusing on the five themes um, and it's been very successful to date
1: well you've got those themes and then you've broken them down to financial skills workshops are you bogged mate which has got to do with the issue of mental health as you were explaining and also tertiary pathways, and you talked about attracting. So you've got the $2 million, and that's an annual fund, as I understand it, and that goes in. And as I understand also, for example, the financial skills, that idea came out from the Dubbo Council itself. So does that mean that if there's one council, they want a particular theme to be addressed, or are you then turning around and saying, right, these are the five main points. We're going to use three workshops, three examples, three projects and every council will embrace them. How does it operate then?
2: Yeah. Now, what we've seen over the past 9 years that each council almost functions as an incubator. So, basically they all agreed with each other that these are the leading themes and they started individually to think about okay, what what is something that we could do? And once an idea was born, like, as you say, the financial skills workshop in Dubbo. A couple of people get together and they create a first version of it. They roll it out as a pilot. They improve the model and actually say, wow, this is actually working. Then they've organized about ten of those sessions and they actually st- starting to tap other client councils on the shoulder to say, hey, uh, is this maybe an idea for you as well? You know, and and the sharing between the councils is a very active element. We as a central team sit in on every meeting and we also let all of the other council know what is happening in the other councils. So financial skills was picked up pretty quickly as a great idea. Uh, and all the councils actually expressed an interest to say, OK, could we develop this program now further as a national offer? And we said, yes, uh, we, we, we can do that. So, you know, we kind of like raised the uh, the sophistication level, if you, if you like we also wanted to make sure that we have a consistent delivery of the program so that it always has good quality so we also hired a facilitator externally to to actually do it most importantly it's for younger farmers wanting to grow to ownership uh, maybe not have had any exposure to tertiary education or business management skills but they can pick them up here in a basic in a basic workshop together with their peers Physically or virtually, it's uh, it's it's all possible. Also, a little bit COVID uh, depending, and they're offered for free. Uh, they're not for clients alone. They are they are really a community activity. Uh, so we could organize it in Emerald or in um, in in Albany or in any area in, uh, in in Australia. We would organize it and reach out to the uh, to the community to uh, to attend.
1: Well, you talk there about uh, the different communities, and for example central queensland cattle country you go to other parts of uh, higher rainfall there's an increasing growth in the horticulture industries so therefore do you tailor those financial workshops accordingly or you've found that there is one size that fits all
2: yeah i think in in financial management there are a number of things that are the same across the board however what we do do is that if we organize it in an area where we could identify a dominant sector we would tailor the cases that we use in this in the workshop to that sector because it then will basically make sense for the majority Uh, so um, any specifics in relation to either dairy or grains or or cattle we would actually integrate in that in that workshop
1: and the program Are You Bog Mate, which is um, what you describe as a down-to-earth approach in raising awareness and getting people to talk about mental health. Now, you talked about you've got a facilitator that comes in on the financial workshop. With the mental health, have you gone outside of the bank or is the bank itself saying, look, we'd like to engage this area of the medical? How are you handling that?
2: Yeah, no, good question. I think that nobody in our bank would be comfortable <laughs> in physical delivery of this topic because this is a very special area uh, this is even an area where some of the most professionally medical approaches wouldn't work and that is because of the language and i'm not talking about english as a language i'm talking about the rural language so in, in order for um, for people to speak out on challenges, that is not easy, and uh, it it's stigmatized as well. And if you would start, for instance, to talk about mental health problems, yeah, you will find probably a very lukewarm reception uh, of of that terminology, and and people will not come out and speak. And I think. The start of a conversation in relation to mental health is extremely important. So if you can find a way that people are finding themselves in a safe space to talk about it, uh, and that's exactly what IU Bogmate is actually doing. uh, uh, IU Bogmate is not run by a medical expert in relation to, to mental health. This initiative is run by somebody that has been in rural communities for the last 30 years uh actually uh, running spray workshops and has learned the language that is effective for people to speak out and that is much more important uh as far as I, as, as concerned than than any kind of like mental approach or, or sorry medical approach on this topic so using metaphors is a very strong uh skill set that i has you know, they they don't talk about mental problems. They talk uh, maybe tongue in cheek a little bit. They talk, talk about a bucket of shit. Uh, and um, if your bucket is, is is very full with all sorts of problems, which could be financially oriented, which could be problems from youth or caused by uh, relationships or or, or or any other topic, you basically throw that in your bucket. And at some point it becomes very, very heavy. And if you do not have the uh, opportunity to, to share that with somebody else and to speak with somebody else about it, you have to carry the weight of the world on your own. And I think this is what these workshops do very well. They basically invite people to talk about it in a safe space amongst their peers, but using metaphors to actually stay away from words that they actually don't want to use.
1: Mark, the third one that you've got is the Rabo Tertiary Pathways. And that's the attraction of trying to get people back into the bush or working in agriculture related industry. Does that mean you're handing out scholarships or are you working with tertiary institutions or do you identify bright kids that may be working and looking at a career in agriculture?
2: Yeah, so I think the bank is very passionate about uh, contributing to industry capacity and very much giving promising students a leg up in that space and also obtain hands-on experience through our network is a, uh, is a very passionate part of the bank. So we have a relationship with eight universities throughout uh, Australia, uh, which can all actually delegate uh, one student to the program. Uh, and they receive a $15,000 sponsorship per person that will help them in their tuition fees. But connected to that is also the opportunity to actually work on a project with the bank. So not only obviously um, helping them with the theory, but also helping them with the practice. They will have exposure to our clients. They will have exposure to departments within the organization. And they basically will learn how an agribusiness bank is working. So that is an active connection, uh, improving the relationship with the university, giving uh, these students a chance to, um, to be exposed to the, to the real world um, and, and also give them support in their tuition fees. And some of these students might end up working for the bank, or some of those students, through their work, are uh, getting noticed by either a CIRO or um, an agricultural organisation uh, where they can basically uh, progress their career.
1: Mark, in pulling together the themes and you met with the councils and you've continued to meet with them and now you've come up with the three main projects, were you aware of this already or did the bank actually say, geez, this has been very handy for us to know what's going on and what the community are thinking?
2: Yeah. Now, I think some of these topics come through anecdotally, but I always say, okay, anecdotes can be quite powerful, but it's usually a, an isolated story. I think through the conversation with the councils, we've been able to actually see the pattern. We see kind of like the priorities in what pe- keeps people awake at night. So it does definitely helps. Without declined councils, we would not have been able to have a good feeling about doing something relevant back to the community. So for us, the dialogue came first, knowing what, is, what matters and then delivering on what matters. So it definitely has helped the bank in, uh, in, in knowing what is, uh, what is keeping them awake at night. Uh, and it helps in other areas as well. Obviously, as a bank, as a, as a significant bank in Australia, we also have a, uh, an ongoing dialogue with government uh, so these topics are also often used to to inform uh, people in government about our observations uh, in farming communities, and, and and that really helps.
1: Mark Ostok is the Rabobank Head of Sustainability and Community Engagement. I'm Michael Kavner, and this is the podcast for the Business Council of Co-ops and Mutuals. Mark, these things always cost money. You've put $2 million in initially, in Ribo Bank's headquarters in the Netherlands, it's very much that cooperative model. A percentage goes back in, and you've talked about the development fund in Australia and New Zealand, where this program is also operating. That $2 million, that obviously must come from somewhere. Is that going to be fixed $2 million each year? How is that going to operate? Yeah.
2: No, absolutely. I think our management locally has decided to guarantee $2 million per year for the first three years and we will look and aim to actually progress to the same model that we have in the Netherlands, where it is more a fixed percentage of of profit uh, at the end of uh, at the end of the year. I think importantly, we see this really as a uh, as, as our investment back into community, uh, but but very much to not so much spreading checks and handouts uh, to, to communities, but mainly in those partnerships, initiatives, together with the clients. We we really believe that that involvement on the ground really is beneficial for the success of delivering those projects. And I think that's quite unique. Uh, We have deliberately chosen not to go for a grant model where people can apply for funds, but basically to select initiatives where we can make a difference and deliver those together with the clients and that's where the money is uh, is basically for that's the main function like i said we will we will grow uh, to a model uh, where it is fixed uh, as a as a percentage of of profit what is also quite important is that the uh, the budget rolls over into uh, into the uh, into the next year it basically means if uh, for some reason it has not been uh, spent it actually gets added into, into the new year on top of the, uh, the t- 2 million investment. I think, let's say the money component at the moment is not very important for us. What is important is how it actually works in practice. I know, for instance, that the share of uh, community fund in the Netherlands is significantly higher because we are obviously a bigger bank there. We wanna be very careful that we are not going to spend money for the sake of spending. We want to be able to say okay this is something that makes a difference this is effective and that's why we want to do it so how that fund is growing in the future also is very much depending on the success of the delivery and if that success of the delivery tastes good then uh, you will automatically see that ramping up because we can make an impact
1: yeah bankers whether you're a co-op or a company you're driven by the bottom line how do you measure the success like you've talked about having you've committed for the three years for certain of that figure and you want eventually it to be a percentage. How do you actually gauge the success of the three particular initiatives that Rabo is operating? Yeah,
2: uh, it's actually a very good question. And it, I, I always also confess that that is a little bit work in progress, how we do that. I, th- I sometimes make the joke in, into the bank that I actually say, okay, in the bank, everything is driven by KPIs. Can we at least work in an area without KPI for, uh, for, for a change? But obviously you wanna be able to measure success. One of the things that we do uh, as part of this, we have an annual review of our uh, uh, client council model where all the client council members have an opportunity to speak up and speak out how they experience the, the journey of being a client council member. Um, and we use a lot of information from that to constantly keep progressing and, and improving. But we also are in uh, in the process of writing our charter and uh, vision document on each of the five themes that I've explained. So we are very comfortable that these are the right topics. We're also very comfortable that some of the initiatives that we've delivered really make a difference and are very much, uh, very much appreciated. But now, for us, we want to look ahead into 2040, 2050. What does success actually look like for us? What is what we ultimately want to contribute to? That will further drive more quantitative milestones. And we have one quantitative milestone on the financial skills workshop, for instance. We wanna do 5,000 young farmers by 2025. We are on around 2,000 at the moment, so it's going actually quite uh, quite good. But I think that chapter on creating that vision towards really long-term and, and setting the milestones for us, that is, at this moment, work in progress. But like I said, we, we, we already know that we're doing stuff in the in the right places.
1: Well, you've got the client councils and then overseeing this, you've got five members of RABO in the overseeing committee. There must be some interesting discussions at times when you've got the bankers on one side and then the client councils on the other side, although you'd probably like to think that they're not on either side, but um, there must be a bit of juggling.
2: Well, it it is interesting how this is actually going. I think the nature of the conversation in the councils is extremely friendly, extremely friendly and collaborative because basically we are there for the same reason. If you you want to contribute to more vitality in agricultural communities, I mean, that's what's driving you. So our bankers and our uh, clients are basically on the same page. You, you could get into a uh, another sort of debate on the moment that you offer the opportunity to have feedback on product services and strategy and, and so forth but in all the meetings that i've been in and i've been in many this first of all is going very very constructive and we've obtained some very good uh, hints and tips from our clients to actually say okay i understand what you're doing as a bank but I'm going to explain to you now how we look at it from the uh, perspective of a client and, and a farmer. And they provide us sometimes with uh, with some feedback that we say, okay, that's good actually to notice, and, and we need to uh, get our front office across this as well so that uh, at their kitchen table conversations they know about this. Uh, so very constructive uh, conversation.
1: Mark, this also encompasses New Zealand as well. Have you noticed a difference with the client councils there and where the funding is to be channelled as opposed to Australia?
2: Yeah, well, good question. When we started out, we actually were afraid a little bit that we would have ended up with all sorts of different attention points and themes all over the place. But we were actually quite pleasantly surprised that um, there was uh, a lot of synergy between the themes in both Australia and New Zealand to the point that both countries have adopted the same five themes. So the direction is exactly the same. Obviously, the way that we execute it in the countries uh, may, be, may be different because it also depends on what you can do and who your partners are. But yeah, it, it very much works, uh, works the same uh, and there are no differences in how we, how we operate.
1: You talked about the co-op ethos that Rabo Australia, while it's a company, is wanting to still continue that ethos along the lines of what's in the Netherlands. Do you find it interesting, because you said you also engage with government, do you find it interesting at times that you as a banker go and talk to government representatives and you're saying, oh, look, we've got this co-op ethos and we're actually looking at doing things like uh, mental health, we've got a fund that's going into that. Are they... Kind of surprised because they think bankers, they're just worried about that financial sector?
2: Good question. I think everybody that I speak to outside the bank, even some of our clients who may not have picked up on the news yet that we have client councils or we have a rabble community fund, they are extremely surprised on the moment that we explain how it works. Uh, They actually say, wow, you're actually putting a lot of effort in, in this. Obviously, the task to facilitate 45 meetings on an annual basis and actually to do something with the outcome and connect your 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 financial resources to it that obviously comes at a cost for for the bank but it is in the spirit of what we what we aim to do uh, and we can make a difference uh, in in that space and i think apart from what we do with the client councils and the community fund there are actually quite a lot more things that we do as a bank which are quite different at some point we have decided uh, quite a while ago that our clients would be really helped by good market information good commodity sector information so they set up a a a a unit globally of which we also have a department of eight in australia and new zealand that is actually um, uh, called rubber research and actually um, collects an enormous amount of information and data and insight globally and locally about each commodity sector. And they issue their reports, and those reports through time have really become a reference for the media and the industry and help our clients to make better business decisions at the end of the day because our clients have access to that information. So, you know, this is a globally organized business unit with more than 80 staff. They are obviously not adding uh anything to the bottom line but they actually do fulfill an enormous important function for our clients and we've got let's say the luxury of being able to make that choice
1: i used to use them very much as a journalist the commodities and when i was covering such things as dairy and i've i found them fantastic At the same time, if you're going to educate them on the financial skills workshops, does it worry you that some of the really successful workshops, they're going to be drilling down so tight into those uh, facts and figures that you're coming out on commodities that they'll start querying the bank and saying, well, hang on a moment. Is that really right?
2: And this may be a personal, but I don't think it's even a personal reaction for me. I I welcome that dialogue. And That might be also a little bit Dutch, I think uh, from from dutch culture we 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 are happy to get into uh, in, into a debate uh, and I think if you if you have a debate, that is a a golden opportunity for for the bank to become more intelligent about how clients think and and, and where we can improve. Um, so I would welcome that debate anytime.
1: Mark, has it also changed the dynamics and the relationships between? the farmers and the banks in the sense that if they walk into the more traditional bank and they've dealt with them and then now they're dealing with Rabo and with the co-op ethos as you're talking about, has that tended to change the dynamics of how they operated with bankers? I think,
2: and this is what I hear back from clients, if we have a client that has joined the bank recently what I often hear from them is that before we actually got into a relationship with Ravi, we knew that they were different, but we did not know how. And now after half a year, I know how. So I think the way that we engage in the relationship, have that immediate focus on supporting clients to achieve their long term uh, goals and aspirations, that that's our, our, our key function. Uh, that they also deal with uh, not 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 really a banker. Uh, we sometimes make the joke, you can make a banker out of a farmer, but you can't make a farmer out of a banker. So uh, I think the bank has recruited very, very wisely over the past uh, decades and invested in a, a front office and a branch network with very knowledgeable people. And our clients do not have to explain farm business to our bankers because 80%, 90%, Comes from a farm or runs a farm at the site. so these people are peers. Uh, so I think that relationship very much focused on long term, uh, and that's why how people are recruited in the in the market.
1: Mark, does this mean that the uh, fund, if it continues going, that you may be on a small aircraft once again, heading out to uh, remote areas of Australia just to get an idea of uh, how the initiatives are operating?
2: Oh, for sure. I hope uh, certainly that the country opens up completely uh, soon. I think, you know, whilst I live in Sydney, I really love the country and I feel actually very fortunate and privileged that my position sometimes takes me to places. And and, and I'm the envy of my friends here in in, in Sydney when I come back with the stories. uh, I think it's very iconic. Uh, it's genuine and um, I think the uh, our clients and the farmers in the rural areas represent a, a real backbone of the country and, and yeah, I, I, I love to visit them.
1: Mark, it's been great chatting to you. Thanks, Michael.
0: Rabobank's Head of Sustainability and Community Engagement, Mark Oyszedek.
1: And Mel, we'll hear more about cooperatives in our next BCCM podcast.
0: I hope you enjoyed this latest episode of Meet the Co-op Farmers. If you'd like to know anything about setting up or running a successful agricultural cooperative, you can find out everything you need to know at the Co-op Farming website. That's www.coopfarming.coop. That's right, C-O-O-P for cooperative. Please, share this with your mates. If you enjoyed this story, we really do want to get the great stories of farming cooperation out there. And remember, in a troubled world, with all of the challenges but also the opportunities we have, we really are better together. I'm Melina Morrison and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of Meet the Co-op Farmers.